tuning in. Welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, December 18th, we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-11. to In today's text, St. Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel that he preached to them, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he showed himself risen from the dead to numerous people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Caleb Adams. Pastor Adams serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. Good to be with you again. So we get started today. Pastor Adams, give us some context. What should we know about this epistle and anything leading up to the text that we've got for today in chapter 15? Yeah, I would imagine that uh, throughout this series, as you've been going through 1 Corinthians, you've probably covered a lot of these things, but I think it's it's helpful as we go into chapter 15, which um, is really one of the, the last big things that, that Paul wants to address with the Corinthians. It's just good to have this context in mind, too. Um, you know, the city of Corinth, I think, is pretty well known to be um, very similar to our own culture in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to the, the cultural diversity, religious diversity, um, the overall morality or, or lack thereof that, that prevailed. Um, Corinth had been a, a Greek city and um, had a lot of Greek culture obviously thriving. And when Rome took over and uh, destroyed the city and 146 BC, 100 years later, um, Julius Caesar reconstituted it, and, and in many ways it, you know, kept uh, kept on with that Greek culture, and um, every other culture you could think of really found its way to Corinth as well. And so uh, you have a city that's, that's full of uh, people with all sorts of different views and understandings of, of the world and, and how it's supposed to work, and society and culture, and and you see that uh, throughout Paul's letter to the Corinthians as he addresses a bunch of things that, that these uh, relatively new believers in, in Corinth are wrestling with uh, when it comes to uh, factions within their own congregation, uh, questions of sexual immorality that, that really, you know, we read and think should have been very clear to them and, and clearly were not, um, questions about idol sacrifices and things like that. Um, the Lord's Supper, of course, there's a very important section in chapter 11, especially on that, uh, just order in Christian worship. What do we do with all these gifts that the Spirit has given us in, in an orderly way to benefit the church and and not just ourselves? And, and so Paul is addressing all of these things. And then in chapter 15, uh, Paul goes from, from a lot of these practical matters into a pretty major doctrinal matter, which uh, we might tend to think um, the Corinthians should have understood because it's it's really sort of the whole point of what Jesus came to do was to reverse the curse of death and and to raise us from the dead. Uh, but even as we we might look down on the Corinthians for not just knowing this, uh, we look around not only in our culture today but even in the church today. There's there's a lot of confusion about the resurrection of the body that we confess in our creeds and what exactly that means and. And so Paul, as, as the pastor that he is, um, 
wants to, to write to these Corinthians that he had been ministering to. You know, he had helped kickstart the congregation there in, in uh, about 50 AD. He went from that famous scene in Athens over to Corinth and met Priscilla and Aquila and, and started uh, this congregation. was there for a year and a half, which is pretty extensive when it comes to Paul's ministry going back and forth. So he knew these people well and um, wanted to really wrap up the, the main content of his letter by hammering home the, the importance of the resurrection of, of the body that Jesus' death and resurrection has won for us. And so that's where the chapter starts. And um, we don't get to get into all of my favorite stuff in chapter 15 today, but this is, <laughs> this is his introduction that, that kind of um, wins his listeners over before he launches into the, the really meaty stuff about the resurrection to come. Sure. Yeah, we we don't get to talk as much about the the details that he speaks about Christ's resurrection and its great importance to the Christian faith and what that means for the for the resurrection that we anticipate on the last day and our resurrection body. Some some wonderful texts coming up here, but I, I do think it's 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 important to see this chapter here as a a bit of a climax within the epistle, as you mentioned. Paul's dealing with a number of you know very practical things for a life of the congregation there in Corinth, the way that they treat each other in love concerning what they eat and the way they should act at the Lord's Supper and the way that they should use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has bestowed upon them, very practical matters, day-to-day stuff. You come to chapter 15, and suddenly we're talking about the resurrection, and as you said, a you know, very doctrinal topic, particularly our section today, and you wonder, well, why why is he going back to just doctrine, or something like that. That does become quite evident as the chapter progresses, perhaps not quite as much in our section today, but when he, he lays out the importance of the resurrection, it's it's really to, in part, to tell the Corinthians, look, all these things that I've talked to you about, they really matter because we have hope not only for this life, but for the life of the world to come. And apart from the resurrection, the rest of the epistle doesn't really matter all that much. And so it, it maybe seems, oh, it's more doctrine from Paul. Here we go again. But there's actually very practical application to this, as we will see. Yeah, I love how you know this this great resurrection chapter ends is um, you know to just give a sneak peek, I guess, for a couple episodes ahead. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so, so everything we're about to hear in this chapter, Paul sees not as some heady, you know, theological sort of treatise. This is eminently practical and has ramifications for everything he's been talking about thus far. So with those things in mind, let's take a look at the text for today. This is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers and at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, 
and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. That is our text for today. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. So in the introductory verse, Pastor Adams, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, serving as a bit of a transition here. We've seen him do similar things throughout this epistle. I, I want you to know, I don't want you to be ignorant here. Now I would remind you. Talk to us about the, the introduction Paul gives here. It is very consistent with what he's been saying throughout the letter. He he wants to make known to the Corinthians um, both things that they apparently are not aware of and, and should be or need to be, as well as to uh, make known to them once again things that he has taught them um, that he's going to expand upon or or just bring back to the forefront for them. And the, the Greek is actually helpful here. You know, a lot of our English translations say Paul is saying, I would remind you, and it certainly has that sense. Uh, but the Greek here uh, literally means, uh, I want to, to make known to you. And so a lot of translations say remind because he's making known something that they already had known, the gospel. He's, he's bringing that back to the, the front and center. Um, and so, so to just say that Paul is reminding them is, is a little less than, than what the, the full effect of, of Paul's language here is. Um, this is a, a solemn declaration of the gospel that he preached, what everything is all about. And, and so he, uh, he uses the, the same formula that he, that he has been throughout this letter. He, he desperately wants to make known to them something that they, they deeply need to know. And in this case, it's it's the thing they need to know more than anything else. It's the heart of everything else. It's the same verb that that Paul uses a number of times in 1 Corinthians. It's the same verb he uses at the beginning of Galatians when he says, I would have you know that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, uh, that this is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ given, given from God uh, for the, the good of his people. And so uh, this gospel that Paul preaches is, is not a gospel. Um, you know, that's such a theme in, in Galatians, right? The, the gospel that I preach to you is not one of many. You know, you're abandoning the gospel I preach to, to go to another gospel, but there really is no other gospel. There is, there is one good message. There is one piece of good news, and it centers on Jesus Christ and him crucified and, and raised from the dead for us. Yeah, I, the, the emphasis on Paul wants the Corinthians to know this, as you said, is consistent with what he said elsewhere in this epistle and in other epistles. I also find it a helpful reminder for us within the context of this epistle in which he's told the Corinthians, rightly so, that knowledge puffs up, love builds up, so that there can be a misuse of knowledge. But here, once again, he emphasizes the proper use of knowledge. It is good for Christians to know things, and especially to know the gospel. And he describes this gospel in a number of ways here. As you said, it is the gospel. There is one. He'll emphasize that same thing to the Galatians. Uh, talk to us about the ways that he describes the gospel here in these, these first two verses. Yeah, so um, he's going to, to get to a kind of a four-part outline of what he um, is— distilling the gospel message down to for his purposes here in this chapter. Uh, but he says some interesting things about it here in these first two verses. 
Uh, first of all, that he, he needs them to know, he wants to make known to them, remind them once again of how important this is. Um, but it's not simply a, an intellectual knowledge. It's not intellectual assent to some stated truths about Jesus. It's so much more than that. And, and so Paul um, gives these different verbs that, that apply to the Corinthians when it comes to the gospel. The first one, he says that the gospel that I preached to you, which you've received, the Greek word here is paralambano, which has all sorts of different uh, ways of, of being rendered in English. If you go to the, the Greek lex or lexicons, they'll, they'll tell you there's all sorts of ways you can understand this word. Um, and in the context of this particular verse, it usually has the force of um, agreeing with, approving of something, accepting something, which I think is helpful because uh, here, uh, of course, Paul is wanting to make known um, these truths of the gospel. And he's reminding the Corinthians that this isn't something brand new to you that you really have to you know, give new consideration to and decide whether or not it's something that you're going to hold on to. This is something you have accepted. You, you know, this is the, the starting point for my conversation on resurrection. And so Paul's beginning to bring um, his listeners in so that they can, can understand more fully the, the fullness of the gospel and its impact um, for eternity through resurrection. Uh, but I, I love, especially, I guess, from our Lutheran theology, that idea of of received, and I love that the ESV translates it that way, because it was not anything that, that the Corinthians did to be recipients of this gospel. They simply, they simply sat there and they heard it proclaimed to them by Paul, and it became theirs. Um, they, they received it from him as a gift uh, from God through Paul's agency. And uh, Paul will continue to talk about that as he has throughout the letter from chapter one on, um, that it's not about the messenger, it is about, it is about the message of the gospel. And so this is, this is what the Corinthians received. And then Paul goes on to say, not only did you receive this, it is the gospel in which you stand. Um, received, there is an aorist uh, verb, which is a, you know, a one-time action in the past. And, and here in uh, the, the next clause here, you stand in it. This is actually a perfect verb. It means this is a, a past action that, that continues to be the case, that has ongoing effect. Um, Paul talks this way quite a bit. You know, Romans 5 is a great example where Paul says we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then he says, through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Um, and Paul's echoing there, you know, words of Jesus that at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You know, the solid foundation, all the way back to Psalm 3, those who are um, in the word of God, in the, the Torah, the Yahweh, the, the teaching of the Lord, um, which includes at its heart the, the gospel message, will be like a tree planted by streams of water. So the Corinthians have received this gospel. They, they stand firmly planted in it as a firm foundation. And then Paul says, um, you are being saved by this gospel. And this is a, a present <laughs> indicative, and it's also a passive verb. Um, again, the Corinthians are not the actors in their salvation. This is, this is God's work. This is God's gift. And it's not something that happened in the past that, that's no longer going on. 
It's not something that they're waiting for to happen someday. It's it's a very present reality. It's that now and not yet. You know, you are being saved. You are saved. You you're being saved. You will be saved for all eternity. Um, and this goes back to you know chapter one. The cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved in the in the present tense, it is the power of God, uh, saved from from sin, saved from eternal condemnation. The gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians is the power of God for salvation uh, for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to all the Greeks living in the city of Corinth. And then finally, you know, Paul says that uh, you must hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Um, This is an, an invitation for the Corinthians to examine their hearts. Are you continuing to to hold fast to the the word proclaimed to you. Jesus uses the same verb in the parable of the sower, describing the good soil. He says those in the the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And so when one holds, clings to the the word of God, the gospel proclaimed to them, uh, they, they stand firm, they are saved, and their belief is is not in vain. And this is an idea that Paul's going to bring back in just a little bit in this chapter, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, everything is in vain. But if he has, mm. nothing is. Your faith is is not in vain, Corinthians. Mm. Yeah, to, so to think about a little bit some of the practical implications of, of the things that you pointed out, even the verb tenses, so things like aorists, perfects, presents, which it might have been a while since we've studied our Greek grammar, or maybe since you've studied any grammar at all. Why why are those things important? I think those things are, are very important, especially in this case, because it, it reminds us of the ongoing need for the gospel. Yes, you've heard it preached to you in the past. God be praised for that, and you've believed it. But that preaching of the gospel has an ongoing impact. There's that, again, that, that perfect tense and present tense especially, that what has happened in the past now has an ongoing effect and impact and action in your lives, so that when your pastor preaches to you every week that Jesus died and rose for you, and in his means of grace he comes to you to forgive you your sins, that repetition is very good for you, and, and you in fact need that repetition because the gospel something that we continue to need and something that continues to work in our lives, not something that we ever leave behind as if we grow out of the gospel. Maybe we grow into the gospel is a better way of thinking about mm-hmm. it. So all these all these uh, grammatical terms that, that you, you're bringing out for us, Pastor Adams, although they're not perhaps what we always think about when it comes to language, they actually do make a difference for our lives. Yeah, it makes me think of baptism, for example. Yeah. You know, when, when did your baptism happen for... For most of us, uh, you know, we we have a good idea of that. It's an sort of an aorist sort of event. There is a one-time time and place where that happened. Most of us have a, a certificate that even tells us where and, and when it happened and who did it and who was there. Um, it's an event in the past. And it's also an event in the present uh, by which we are daily being saved as we drown the old Adam and arise to live, you know, anew every day in, in the kingdom of God. And it's sealed our salvation for for eternity. It's past, present, future. All these all these verb tenses uh, apply there. 
That's right. So the the gospel is something that Paul wants the Corinthians to know now, to continue to know. It is something that you and I as Christians continue to need to know, to hold fast to, that we would believe it not in vain. So with those, those effects of the gospel, what the gospel is doing and has done for the Corinthians, Paul then goes on to remind them of the content of the gospel. So let's, let's get this conversation started on, on this side of the break, and we'll continue it on the other side, Pastor Adams, when we think about the, what the content of the gospel that he begins there in verse 3. He starts like this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Maybe before we get into the content that he lays out after that, just talk to us about that introduction. He received, then he delivered. Yeah, a couple of important Greek verbs are present in, in that phrase there. Um, the Greek for delivering the gospel is paradidomi. It means to, to pass down, to hand on. Um, some scholars would even uh, take the word tradition and make a, a verb out of it here. You know, Paul traditioned down to the Corinthians in this case, what he had received. And he doesn't specify here really um, where he received it from. Um, he does in other places. Um, normally when you use this word, you're saying you're passing down, transmitting, relating, teaching a, a tradition that, that you have learned from other people. And so what Paul could be doing here is, is pointing out, as uh, he will later in verse 11 and, and following, that this is not Paul out on his own. This is him in, in communion with the church as a whole, proclaiming the apostolic faith as, as many other preachers do. Um, but I think it's, it's helpful to remember you know, what Paul writes in, in other places, and particularly, again, in Galatians. Um, Paul's actually very clear that his receiving of the gospel, and that's the second Greek verb we have there, is a repetition of paralambano, that Paul himself received this gospel. He didn't come up with it. And in Galatians, he says, you know, I would have you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul then does later on, of course, you know, engage in, in learning and, um, and growing in, in that revelation of the gospel from Jesus. But, but this is a powerful thing to think that just as the Corinthians received the gospel as a gift, that Paul received the gospel as a gift uh, directly from Jesus Christ, and now he's, he's handing that on. And so, you know, as Luther says in, in his uh, helpful confession absolution paradigm he gives us, do you believe that the forgiveness proclaimed by the pastor is from God himself? We could maybe extend that here to say, you know, Corinthians, do you believe the gospel proclaimed by Paul is from God himself? And the answer is a resounding yes. And so uh, what is that gospel? Paul lays it out in, in kind of this, this fourfold summary. Yeah, this, this language that he uses here in verse 3 of this chapter bears a lot of similarities to the way he spoke back in chapter 11 when he was speaking about the words of institution and re repeating the words of institution concerning the sacrament of the altar there in, in verse 23. He uses this language of that which he had received, so he he handed down. It got that same language here. So this is, and, and as he says here, this is, this is the first, right? This is what he the, wants them to know of first importance. So this is very key teaching that the Corinthians and all Christians need to know. Now, before we dig into the details of each individual thing, how does he summarize the content of the gospel here? 
Yeah, it's interesting because we have so many summaries of the gospel in the scriptures, and Paul himself describes the gospel, you know, from so many different angles with so many different contours to the message. And and here, his purpose really is to prepare the Corinthians for everything he's going to say about the resurrection of the body and God's promise to us in that. And so he condenses down the gospel um, in really four parts. And you know, we could we could haggle with Paul and say you left out you know this or that. And of course, this isn't exhaustive. It's but it's meant to be um, you know a very concise summary. In fact, uh, some scholars are pretty confident that that what Paul says here is actually a quotation from an early Christian catechism, maybe an early Christian creed or something like that. But the four parts that he that he uh, hones in on here are that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and that he appeared to many people. Hmm. All right, so those those four parts are going to be the, the highlights that Paul wants the Corinthians particularly to know, the first one being Christ's death, which harkens back to the first chapter of this epistle, where he says, I wanted to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. doesn't specify crucified here, but I think as he brings up Paul, or as he, as Paul brings up Christ's death, the Corinthians can't help but recall what he said to them at the beginning of this epistle. Well, this is, this has been the heart of it all from the beginning of the epistle to, you know, this climactic chapter. Um, it's the heart of, of the entire Christian faith. Everything springs from this gospel that that Christ was crucified for us. That's why this is of first importance. Nothing else matters without this. Everything else is is flowing from uh, Christ's death for us. And what's interesting here is uh, that that Paul uses a phrase that he actually uh, personally doesn't use all that often. In fact, I, I I forget if this is maybe the only place where Paul specifically says it this way. But the phrase that Christ died for our sins. Um, of course, that theology is is you know, very powerfully present in, in all of what Paul has to say, but that that Paul specifically points out the forgiveness of our sins uh, through Christ's death um, is significant and, and kind of unique in, in Pauline language here, um, and just you know, verifies for us that, yes, that's what Paul means by all these other uh, verbs that he uses to talk about the effects of Christ's death. Um, I think in this section too, as we look at these verb tenses, are are important as well, uh, because when we get to you know Christ's death, we have the, the aorist active indicative. Christ died at, at one time, and he's not dead anymore. Um, and so we're going to see that with with the coming um, elements of the gospel too. Uh, but Paul also includes a phrase here in accordance with the scriptures, uh, which we know well from. Uh, the Nicene Creed, and that that Christ's death and resurrection were very much in accordance uh, with the Scriptures. It's fun to read commentaries and and see uh, how scholars get pretty upset that Paul doesn't give us a, the specific Scriptures that he means. What's he talking about? And um, well, he's talking about the entire Scriptures, um, all of them in in every part testify of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which he. Uh, Jesus himself kindly and, and lovingly pointed out to the Emmaus disciples and, and to, the, to the 11 that are here called the 12, which we'll get to in a second. Um, he was, Jesus was always pointing out that, you know, you search the scriptures 
because you think you find eternal life in them. And, and you're not wrong about that. But where you go wrong is you're missing the entire point. They all point to me, to my death, uh, to my resurrection. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just Paul speaks very similarly to the way St. Luke writes at the end of his gospel in Luke 24, when Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and then he gives us these words from Jesus, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Well, which scriptures? Yes, all of them. They, they all testify to this. That's right. So so Paul is on on in good company when he writes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's the first thing that he includes in the content of the gospel. He's got more to say. We're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Caleb Adams this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, December 18th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11 with Pastor Caleb Adams. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, prior to the break, we were starting Paul's fourfold, speaking about the content of the gospel. First, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Next, that he was buried. And then third, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Take us into the next two things Paul says. Yeah, we pointed out that, that Christ's death here um, is an aorist verb, that Christ died once uh, for sins, as, as scriptures say elsewhere. Uh, the same is, is said of his burial. It's again an, an aorist verb, Christ was buried. The fact that Paul would highlight this is probably to point out that Christ did truly, really, completely die. He was not mostly dead. It was not a, a hallucination or, or a, you know, whatever else People might marshal against the resurrection because that is, of course, the, the point of Paul's chapter here. Christ completely died, just like uh, barring his return before, uh, we will completely die. And what happened after Christ completely died? Uh, he was completely <laughs> raised from the dead. And Paul shifts the tense of his verb here. In Christ's resurrection, um, it is a perfect verb which indicates not only did he do it, it happened, it has ongoing uh, significance. It continues to be the reality. Christ is raised now and forever. Uh, he was raised on the third day, and uh, Paul's going to uh, quickly move us to, in this chapter, to the fact that because he did that, uh, we also will be raised from the dead. Uh, but Paul repeats here the phrase that he used with Christ's death, in accordance 
with the scriptures. He's, he's pointing out how important that is by the repetition that he uses here. The scriptures have always testified to the death and resurrection of Christ. This has always been God's plan. And, and now, as, as Paul says in Ephesians and elsewhere, the revealing of the mystery of the gospel is now being made known to the nations. And so where, where Paul is about to go um, with these post-resurrection appearances, you know, we modern post-enlightenment people uh, tend to see them primarily as, as proofs, you know, empirical evidence, which, which in part they are. Um, but as Paul marshals his evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus, as he reminds, makes known to the Corinthians what Christ has done for us, um, it's significant that, that Paul places the scriptures at the, the very top of that list. Um, Paul is going to share all these eyewitnesses' accounts, but he, he prioritizes the testimony of the scriptures over those who, who saw these scriptures fulfilled. Um, Luther has a great quote about this and as he's writing on this section. He says, Here you notice how Paul adduces scripture as his strongest proof, for there is no other enduring way of preserving our doctrine and our faith than the physical or written word poured into letters and preached orally by him or others. For here we find it stated clearly, scripture, scripture. And so Paul goes from, from the scriptures now uh, to their fulfillment with these these post-resurrection appearances to to many different people. I, I really love that that point about the scriptures being the first witness to the resurrection, and then come the eyewitnesses. And, and the way that you described it, and giving us that quote from Luther, falls right in line with the way Saint Peter speaks in his second epistle, where he's talking about the transfiguration, about how how he and others, you know, saw these things. But we have something even more sure than that, which is the prophetic word. So the, the scriptures are the witness, the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus. God in his mercy provided for these witnesses, however, these post-resurrection appearances, which Paul includes in this content of the gospel. And this is where, in terms of the, the length of this particular section, as he's talking about the gospel that was proclaimed, there's a lot here. So take us into these, these post-resurrection appearances that he lists here. Yeah, I, I love that too, and and how Peter you know describes the scriptures. He Peter actually has a lot to say about the scriptures and their authority and reliability, and and how they came from God, just as Paul speaks of the gospel. Um, but it, it's it's kind of interesting, actually, how Jesus and and the angels after his resurrection, um, in these appearances that that Paul talks about, he almost has a sense of surprise, like this is. Did you not know this was going to happen? Right. I mean, I, yeah, I told right. you, the scriptures testified to it. Um, but um, Jesus could have easily risen from the dead and appeared to no one, um, and the scriptures would have been adequate testimony. Um, but Jesus, I think out of great love for his people, for his church, um, appears to to all of these people. So these appearances, they, they corroborate the death and resurrection gospel that Paul's uh, received and delivered to the Corinthians. They do add this, this eyewitness proof of the resurrection. Um, you know, think of Acts 2, Peter's um, sermon on Pentecost, where he says, God raised Jesus up, and of that we are all witnesses. There, there was a, you know, a significance to this eyewitness testimony, and the apostles would talk about that. Um, but remember, this, this gospel has been received. It is something... Um, accepted, if we want to use that word in an appropriate biblical way of understanding, um, only by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul says that a few chapters ago in, in chapter 12. No one can say Jesus is Lord 
except in the Holy Spirit. And so, um, so Jesus here is, is wanting to, to equip his followers with, um, with power to proclaim um, the gospel and to be able to say, I'm, I'm just sharing with you what, what I myself have seen. So, so these uh, appearances that Paul talks about, they're not exhaustive. I mean, Paul doesn't mention, for example, the, the appearance Jesus makes to the women at the tomb or, um, or those sorts of things. And so we shouldn't read this as a, you know, a full accounting of all of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Um, but there's significance to each one of them. And, and it starts with Cephas, you know, Peter, of course. And uh, this appearance seems to be the one that Luke talks about when the, the Emmaus disciples come back and are about to share, you know, Jesus has risen from the dead and this is brand new information for all of you. And, and the response they get is, we know some of the women told us and, and he appeared to Simon um, and so, uh, so Jesus in his mercy appears to Peter, the one who had denied him and, um, kind of as a, a precursor perhaps to the full absolution that is recorded in, in John uh, 21 with, with Peter being forgiven. But Peter is kind of the leader of, of the apostles as he's often, um, you know, described, uh, gets a, a special appearance from Jesus. And then after Cephas to the 12, um, you know, there's a little bit of, of conversation about this because at that time there were 11. Um, you know, Judas had, had gone off and hung himself. Most people would say this is simply shorthand for those original apostles of Jesus, although uh, some add that, you know, well, maybe, maybe Matthias was chosen before, um, you know, Jesus made this appearance. Um, I don't know how important that is. Certainly Matthias is a witness of the resurrection, as, as Acts makes clear, as they're uh, looking for, for such an eyewitness to join them in, in the office of apostle. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's significant. Jesus doesn't simply show up to the 12 and say, see, I told you so. Um, he comes to them, I think, first of all, to proclaim peace, right? Peace be with you. He repeats himself because uh, peace is probably not the first reaction that they have. Um, but then he also, uh, he commissions them. He appears for a purpose. He appears to, to send them. And so, you know, Matthew 28, which we'll come back to in just a second here, you know, the 11 disciples go to Galilee and what does Jesus say? He gives them the, the great commission to go and preach the gospel. And in John 20, when Jesus appears to them with, you know, with Thomas not there at the time, you know, what does Jesus do? He breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit, go and forgive sins, proclaim the gospel. Acts chapter 1 is Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven. What does he say? He says, you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses, you know, throughout the world. And so these, these appearances of Jesus always have this um, missionary element to them. Mm. All right, so we've got two Cephas, we've got two of the twelve, how does now the the next one is maybe the most tantalizing for us? Two more than five hundred at one time. That's I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, so would I. Uh, too bad. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's that's right. kind of where where this one leaves <laughs> us is wow, more than five hundred at one time. That must have been a hugely significant event. And well, this is the only the only place we hear about it. Um, and you know the the fact that Paul doesn't give any more details should maybe alert us to. To the truth that we don't we don't need to know more details that that's not really 
the point here, you know, that there were 500 of them and here's how you can contact them and here are their numbers. And yeah, we don't know um, the, the particular details about this appearance. Some have speculated, and I think probably, you know, with, with good reason that this might be referring to Acts 28 as, as the 11 go and receive the Great Commission, but, but it would make sense that there would be, you know, others there. So perhaps that's the case. Um, Lenski in his commentary gives like four or five reasons why he thinks that's the case. It certainly could be, but, you know, what's, what's the significance here in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians? He's about to, he's about to claim that because Jesus rose from the dead, and he, of course, really did, um, then we will rise also. And so, you know, any objections that might be leveled against this resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, um, it's really hard to do that when, when there's a claim that 500 people have seen him who was buried, now alive again. And, and Paul does give a little bit of a, a sense of, you know, go ahead and verify it if you want, because uh, most of them are still alive. I mean, that, that's not a claim you make if, uh, you know, if, uh, if it's not able to be backed up. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of mysterious. We don't know all that much about it, but it's very significant. And, and then Paul um, moves to James which is um, not as confusing for us. Um, we, we don't have this appearance to James recorded in Scripture for us, but it does seem to be pretty clear who he's referring to, which would not be uh, James the son of Zebedee or James the son of Alphaeus. They were included in the 12 earlier, but rather the, the brother of Jesus who becomes the, the head of the, the church in Jerusalem, which is significant because James at first did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. John 7 verse 5 makes that very clear that James and his brothers did not believe in him. Um, But then in Acts chapter 1, uh, we have, you know, this description of the early church um, right after the ascension. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so, we don't know when this appearance occurred, where it occurred. We don't know the full story of, of even the, the process by which James was converted. Um, but certainly this is, this is significant and would have been significant for the Corinthians who would know James as, as one of the leaders of the church. And then just as Peter um, you know, had this appearance and then the 12, now we have James and all the apostles. And this seems to pretty clearly be describing more than just the 12, um, possibly the 72 that were sent out in Luke 10. Um, you know, apostle was a pretty specific title applied to, to the 12, um, but not exclusively. And so um, here we have also a, a larger group. And then uh, last of all, and that's exactly how Paul puts it, uh, last of all, verse 8, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So so Paul is the, the last, um, probably in order and in ranking, I think Paul would say, as he makes clear in the next few verses, to receive this, this gift of Jesus making a, a post-resurrection appearance to him. And so, uh, so perhaps, you know, this could also be an indication that, um, you know, Jesus was making all these post-resurrection appearances and then he capped it off by appearing to me. Um, and so this this gift of, you know, apostleship, this office of apostleship, the being a resurrection witness, um, perhaps was a gift given to the church as a foundation on which to build as opposed to this ongoing reality, like the Mormon church has apostles still today, for example. Um, 
Ephesians 2.20, um, you know, Paul describes that uh, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Uh, but regardless, Paul sees himself as the last to, um, to receive this appearance of the risen Christ. And, and that's significant in, in what he has to say in, in the closing verses of our text for today. Uh, so we've got about 10 minutes to talk about these last couple verses here in which Paul talks about his own apostleship. To start, he calls himself one untimely born, and then he he says that that means he's the least of all, and he, he brings up the matter of, of his history from what he was doing when he was called to be apostle. Take us into some of those details. Yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting phrase that Paul uses here, and... Um... I don't think anyone's exactly sure what to do with it. As, as I read commentaries, both modern and throughout the early church and, and from Luther, everybody seemed to have a different opinion on exactly what the significance is. Um, the Greek word is ektromatos, and it typically refers, um, some would say always refers, to a miscarriage um, or an infant born prematurely that is not able to survive. And so so some would say Paul is absolutely talking about how he was completely dead and helpless um, when he received the gospel. He was you know, in a state of not just a lack of faith, but was opposed vehemently and violently to the faith. Um, it could also be, you know, as, as most English translations um, translate it today, you know, one untimely born, it could be a kind of a, a birth out of the ordinary, you know, that doesn't correspond to the the normal time period that that someone is born. So, like Luther says that, um, you know, the mother of of Paul was was the synagogue, um, and so Paul was was born again through faith in kind of an unexpected way. Um, one of the the commentaries that was attributed to Ambrose. Um, says by untimely, Paul means that he was born again outside time because he received his apostleship from Christ after the latter had ascended into heaven. Um, others you know, point out that Paul did not have the chance to spend time with Jesus as all the other disciples did during his earthly ministry. Um, regardless of the, the best way of understanding it, Paul definitely sees himself as an outlier, and it's definitely not a... Um, not a flattering term to apply to himself. One untimely born, this this dead, aborted fetus, premature birth, whatever it might be. And it kind of reminds me of you know Yankee Doodle. At least the story I've heard about it is the British you know sing this song to make fun of the the Americans, and the Americans take it as a, a badge of honor and start singing it. And um, you know, well, call me Yankee Doodle. I'll I'll appreciate that. I'll I'll go with it. So so perhaps you know some have speculated that. That this is a, a title and epithet that was, uh, you know, thrown at Paul by his opponents, and maybe that's what's going on here. Regardless, Paul is certainly being self-deprecating, um, and that's because, as he says, he persecuted the Church of God. Um, the, the scriptures um, in the New Testament, and most of it coming from Paul, Paul's pen himself, um, testify to the extent of of Paul's persecution of the church, that he approved of Stephen's execution, that he was ravaging the church, dragging off men and women, putting them in prison, breathing threats and murder. Um, and of course, it all comes to a head when, when Jesus himself says, why are you persecuting not just my church? Why are you persecuting me? And 
this is clearly something that that stays with Paul uh, for the rest of his life. He's completely confident that that his sin is forgiven, but he always sees this um, as a a means by which God's grace can be displayed. Because if God can appear, um, you know, if if the risen Jesus would deign to appear to someone such as Paul and then use him to proclaim that resurrection to the world. Um, there is no one in, in all of creation uh, for which Jesus did not die and, and rise from the dead, to whom Jesus has not given the gift of, of resurrection. It's all, about, it's all about the grace of God given to Paul uh, and given to, to each one of us. So Paul brings up the grace of God that he has received in verse 10. He says, by that grace, he, he is what he is. I am what I am. God's grace was not in vain, and that led Paul then to work even harder than the others, even though it was still the grace of God that he attributes, gives all the credit. Helps into verse 10. Yeah, it, it's all about the grace of God. And for Paul, that's just that's so self-evident in what he says, because he says a couple of things in these verses that that don't seem to to fit together. You know, he says, I am nothing, untimely born, a, a dead fetus, completely helpless, and a persecutor of the church, the least of the apostles. In fact, the name Paul means small or least or humble. Um, you know, Paul himself goes by this name that, that describes how gracious God is to someone such as himself. Um, you know, his apostleship, the fact that he's a minister is, is all by God's grace. Um, not his work at all. You know, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 are, are some of our favorite verses. We're saved by grace through faith, and Paul applied that first of all uh, to himself. And so it's by the grace of God, and that's it. I am what I am. It's where Popeye, I think, got that quote from. He's just quoting Paul. Uh, but then, yeah, Paul says this interesting thing, um, that he worked harder than anyone, um, and yeah, harder than any of them, which who's the them there? It could be um, any of the others to whom Jesus had uh, appeared after his resurrection. Some would say it has to do with the, the factions that the Corinthians are dealing with. Some would say the you know false teachers or, or whatever it might be. I, I think, again, the, the point here isn't really um, who he's referring to there. The point is that, um, that God used even someone such as Paul to accomplish uh, so very much by his grace. St. Augustine says, Paul did not labor in order to receive grace, but he received grace so that he might labor, um, which of course gets that Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and then you add on verse 10, gets the order right. You know, we're saved by grace through faith as a gift, and we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk about in. And that's exactly what Paul would do. He would walk about in the, the good work of declaring the gospel to the world as he walked about uh, most of the known world <laughs> throughout the Roman Empire, um, sharing you know what what Jesus Christ has done that that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, all in accordance with the scriptures and and that he appeared to many, including Paul. And so we have this this phrase that could seem a little arrogant even that Paul is pointing the the attention to himself and and if we're tempted at all uh, to read Paul in that way, uh, we then have him followed up with, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
just like that, that famous verse in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Hmm. Now, in the last verse of our text, it sounds like Paul's doing a little bit of a callback to what he talked about at the very beginning of this epistle, that there are not to be divisions in the church based upon which preacher you like best, but rather, whoever it was that preached the gospel, we are preaching these things together. Paul, Cephas, Apollos, all are pointing to this one gospel that Paul has proclaimed. Seems like he's really setting the stage there for what is to come. Have about two and a half minutes here, Pastor Adams. Give us any details from that last verse and help us to wrap things up for the morning. Yes, so um, Paul really highlights his own ministry um, in a lot of his letters, including here. But the purpose is never to to highlight himself. The purpose is always to highlight Christ. Uh, The reason Paul points to himself is because he is this one untimely born, and God chooses to use him to proclaim the gospel. Uh, But he's not the, the only one proclaiming the gospel. It is not his gospel in the end. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ given by Jesus Christ directly to Paul to proclaim, given by Jesus Christ to the apostles, to the church, and so, uh, as you said at the beginning of this letter, um, it is it is about Jesus. It is not about Cephas, Apollos, Paul. Um, it's about the one who who gives the growth, the one who suffered and died. Uh, so no matter who it is, no matter how it is proclaimed, if it is the gospel being proclaimed, um, may God be praised for that. So we preach, not so I preach, Paul says. And so you believed. Um, you know, Paul says similar things elsewhere not only at the beginning of First Corinthians, but in, in Philippians, even more starkly, perhaps. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. And so the church, uh, Paul being uh, certainly a, a huge part of that, speaks with unified voice, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And in doing so, here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's laid the foundation for his conversation about the resurrection of the body. And so uh, as we wrap up this section, you know, what are, what are some key takeaways? I think one would be that the gospel is, is rooted in, in the facts of what Jesus has done for us, um, that Jesus did, in fact, do everything the scriptures proclaimed and that many, many people saw Jesus do exactly what the scriptures proclaimed he would do in in dying, being buried, rising from the dead. Um, And yet, it is not simply a matter of of history. It is a matter of of God's grace, not only in sending Jesus to suffer and die for our sins and rise from the dead, um, but that we receive that grace, just as Paul did, just as the Corinthians. Uh, It is only by God's grace that we are what we are. And as Paul takes this truth forward into the rest of the chapter, um, He's going to be pointing out in so many beautiful ways in the verses to come how Jesus' resurrection has tremendous implications for our own. So he's laid the groundwork here by pointing us once again, as he always does, to Christ crucified and risen from the dead for us. Pastor Caleb Adams is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Adams, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks again. It was fun as always. The gospel is of first importance. Christ has died. He has been buried, and he is risen from the dead. 
He appeared to many, and that witness is still ours today in the scriptures, which you and I read and study through which the Lord Jesus brings us to faith in him, in the resurrection victory that he has won for us. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians 15, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.